I do want to say that, let me ask this, how many have been able to get away and get into some warmth this Christmas so far, this, through this winter season? Anybody? Just raise your hand. Okay. So those of you who haven't, this service that's coming up with, you know, with the Jamaican feel is kind of, we're bringing the South to you, Okay. We're going to do some, some kind of that, that Calypso kind of music. We're going to do some fun kind of stuff. And we're going, to, we're going to make it warm in here. So please participate. Bring, you know, wear your Hawaiian shirt or whatever it is um, as we bring the warmth into this time. And you get to go away on a cruise for hardly anything. You know what I mean? It's a great idea. So... You know, there are some things. We're going into a series this next week called Remember, and it was really kind of brought to my mind as I was talking to one of our elders, and, and they had just suggested, you know, uh, I'm not sure whether God is in this or not, the person said, but just thought maybe it would be good for us to just go back and highlight, like in a message, each, you know, one of the services, a series that we've gone through. And so that's why the joy will be doing that. We'll be looking at a few others in the month to come. And it's really important to notice and to understand that calling people back to something they've learned is, happens all the time in the Bible. God is often saying, remember, and, and, and if you have kids, you know, teaching the same lesson over and over again is a part of the way you, you create a habit to help them grow in it. And sometimes you meet them at a different place where they're deeper. Well, Jesus had no problem with that. You read through the Gospels, and you'll find in this series that we call Be Great, and we're talking about greatness and, and what God can call you to do. God has no problem. Jesus had no, he didn't stand against or oppose this idea of greatness. He just talked about what it looked like, how you did it, how you got there. And so he would say this again and again. In fact, in one place um, prior to the passage that we've been looking at, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, the disciples come to Jesus and, and Jesus asked them, he says, what is the, you know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They had been kind of wrestling, and he saw them talking about this question. They would barter back and forth between themselves and who is. And Jesus calls this little child to him and has him stand among them, and I think he probably puts his hands on this little one's shoulders. And he kind of calls to everyone, and he says, I tell you the truth. And when he would say that, verily, verily, some of you in King James Version, it's kind of, you could put this in the bank and count on it. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And then he added this little word, therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And they continued to wrestle with that, and Jesus continued to teach them. And so a little later in the scripture, let's all stand together, because at one other point, stand if you would, and say what we've been saying. At one other point, Jesus looks at him and he says these words, and I'd ask you the same with me. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Father, we stand before you, and we ask that you would teach us what it means to live in, in your presence what it means for the rule of God to rule us. Help us to be grateful and thankful and humble. God, you meet us every day in ways that we never say thanks. Right now as we stand, every breath we take in and out is a gift from you. And we are so humbly dependent on you. 
So I would ask, Lord Jesus, that you would send your spirit, that we would breathe in your spirit and take him deep into our lungs and into our system, into our body, into this church, and that, God, we would exhale those things which do not please you, and that, God, we would live in such a way that we would be like your son, Jesus. Come speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's really interesting because Jesus pulls this child in front of him and in front of everybody to to give this lesson because kids are incredibly humble. They're naturally humble, and it's primarily because they're not self-conscious. They haven't developed some of that awareness of themselves. They're, you know, really beautifully um, transparent in some very simple ways. They're they're exactly what you see. There's no hiding, no duplicity. Um, They don't conceal their character. They don't feel any need to. They're not even aware of it at times. And they just say what comes to mind. It reminds me of a story I, I heard about this dad who was just overworking. He was just slammed with work. You know what that's like? And you come home and he, he sits down with the kids and he eats, you know, he kind of eats a quick dinner and he just says, I'm sorry to his wife. I just got to go to the, to the home office. He had an office at his home and I got to just continue to work on this stuff that I've got. And, and, and his, his daughter looked at him and said, Daddy, I mean, do you have homework again tonight? And uh, he said, you know, honey, I, I'm sorry, I do um, lots of homework to finish. And, and, and then with all innocence, she just said, Daddy, have they ever thought of putting you in a slow group? <clears throat> Some of you guys may want to talk to your bosses about that. Some of you women may want to check with your bosses about that. And um, They're embarrassingly honest and sincere because they're ignorant of almost everything and they have no problem asking questions. You ever notice that? See, part of the stage of life is moving from self-consciousness and growing in awareness to a point where you begin to become what I call over-conscious of yourself. Hyper-aware of yourself so that it's not a good thing to be ignorant. So you have to coax people to say, and you say things like, there's no dumb question, right? And everyone's sitting there going, yeah, there really are. But anyway... And, and we, we do that kind of thing because we become um, incredibly self-conscious. We live in a world where you can't say what comes to mind. In, in fact, you probably shouldn't a lot of times, right? That's part of growth. That's part of becoming a child to growing into becoming an adult. And we become conscious of ourselves and we discover, in a sense, that we need people to see us and ourselves as good or right or gifted or able or having our act together, Right? In fact, we have a culture statements that we say here often, and we really are trying to live out. Everyone's welcome. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. But I think we live in a world where some are welcome. Everybody has to kind of have their act together, and nobody really needs any help. And if you do, you better not admit it. And that's what it lives and looks like when you are living with this sense of over-consciousness of self. There isn't a freedom to it. But some people actually grow up. Some people actually move from this um, lack of self-consciousness to this place of what I call over-conscious of oneself to a place where they become what I would call self-forgetful and very much aware of themselves. They become like a child. Yet their innocence moves to a sense of virtue because of the testing and time. I had read a few weeks ago from um, this man, David Brooks, in, in, a, in a book called The Road to Character, and he says great leaders, people who do great things, influence people in great ways, 
Live with an inverse logic. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender something outside yourself to gain something within yourself. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. At one point in the midst of life, Jesus turns to his disciples and he just looks at them and he says, you know, guys, um, as I move to this place where I'm going to be used of, of our Father in incredibly great ways, I'm going to be going into Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed. And Peter just looks at him and says, never. I mean, that's just, <clears throat> that's not the way to greatness. You're not going to really influence anybody on that path. And I love how the Bible kind of puts it. It, it, it says that Jesus looks him in the eyes and he goes, Peter, what you're thinking of isn't from you. It's almost like he's looking at, at this voice from the pit of hell and speaking to that and saying, Peter, don't listen to that. And he says this to Peter and he says this to the disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. And for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. They'll move to this place of maturity where they begin to walk and they begin to operate in the, the realm of God's kingdom and his rule. The one is great, says Jesus follows my example by denying themselves, by losing themselves, by forfeiting themselves, by actually becoming forgetful in some sense of themselves. It really is a step of maturity. And I ask you to think about it as we go through this. Where are you at in this process of maturity? And to know this, that God by his Holy Spirit, because what Jesus has done on the cross, can actually lead you into a place over time where you can grow into this mature self, where humility can become a part of your life, and God, without even being aware of it, will do influentially great things through you. Just take that in for a second. There seems to be stages of spiritual maturity where from children with little consciousness of self, we become adults filled with an overconsciousness of self, and then actually Jesus invites us into a place into, for all people, if they would just mature like Jesus, we begin to have a sense of self-forgetfulness. They would lose their self. And in that, God would begin to operate in them. They would be aware of their sin, and they would, they would come to an understanding of their need for forgiveness and their need to deny their impulses and other things. And it's all a process of becoming a great person who influences many as you grow into this stage of humility. So I'm reading this book of David Brooks. He's a little further early on, in fact, in his introduction. He makes this, this statement. He gives a picture of this kind of what I call self-forgetful maturity. He says, occasionally, even today, you come across certain people who seem to possess an impressive inner cohesion. They are not leading fragmented, scattershot lives. They have achieved inner integration. They are calm and settled and rooted. They are not blown off course by storms. They don't crumble in adversity. Their minds are consistent and their hearts are dependable. Their virtues are the ripening virtues you see in people who have lived a little and have learned from their joy and pain. Sometimes you don't even notice these people because while they seem kind and cheerful, they're also somewhat reserved. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. They radiate a sort of moral joy. 
They answer softly when challenged harshly. They're silent when unfairly abused. They're dignified when others try to humiliate them, restrained when others try to provoke them. But they get things done. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest, everyday spirit they would display if they were just getting groceries. I love that line. It just seems normal for the course. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest everyday spirit they would display if they were just getting groceries. They are not thinking about them, about what is impressive, the impressive work they're doing. They're not even thinking of themselves at all. They seem just delighted by the flawed people around them. They just recognize what needs to be done and they do it. And they make you feel funnier and smarter when you speak with them. And they move through the different social classes, not even aware, it seems, that they are doing so. And after you've known them for a while, it occurs to you that you've never heard them boast, you've never seen them self-righteous or doggedly certain, and they aren't dropping little hints of their own distinctiveness and accomplishments. And they have not led lives of conflict-free tranquility, but have actually struggled to maturity. These are people who have built a strong inner character, who have achieved a certain strength and depth, They are self-aware and yet self-forgetful. These are humble people who have become great. And I read that, and and I turned to my wife, who was sitting next to me, and I read it to her. And I just said, I want to be like that. Recognizing how far I am from that in many situations. And then I just said, God, that's that's my deep prayer. I, I want to move into this stage of maturity where as I do things for you, I'm able to do so just like I'm going to get groceries. I'm able to do so in such a way that I'm not really thinking about me, but I'm really thinking about you and others. And so as I was praying through that and I was working through that as I was preparing these messages back in November and December and earlier, in fact, and, and, and at that one point I read this around November, I remember just thinking, God, One of the things I want to end with, what I want to share with, is there are actually practical steps. Because I read that and I thought, that's a picture, in a sense, of humility. You can see it in the life of Jesus. You can see it in the life of David. We talked about that. We can see it in the life of Moses. You can see it in all these characters who have done great things for God. And you can look at certain things. And you'll find that when I talk about this, there's certain these steps that I'm going to bring out. You'll find in each one of their lives. So I want to share with you as we go through this, I want you to think about this for yourself. And you may actually invite someone else to be with you in it, maybe take one step for maybe 30 days and say, I'm going to develop this. I'm going to be accountable on this. So just think, and as you hear this, go, God, where are you speaking to me? So what are some of these steps? The first one is really pretty simple. It's not one you have to do a lot of work at in one sense because it's not about intentionally having to do something. It's really more about responding in a proper way. And the first is this, use your trials. One of the great ways that you will begin to grow into humility is that you will begin to see your trials in the way that God wants you to see them with his perspective. See, we all have a choice. We have a choice. Either we can go through the trial or we can actually grow through the trial. There's a real difference there. Peter says it this way. He says in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. 
And it's really interesting. He's making a couple statements. He says, you know, basically, if you're living life, you're going you're gonna to go through trials. Everybody here, and you may be in one right now, so this may be particularly important for you to listen to and didn't pay attention to. But Peter not only says expect that they're a part of life, but he also says to use it. He says participate. You are, in a sense, participating. He's talking to these who were actually under um, some suffering due to the fact of their faith. But this can be applied in many different ways when trials come into your life. You are participating in such a way that he's saying, don't just endure it. Don't try to get through it. He's not saying rejoice and just go through the trial. He's actually saying to us, rejoice and grow through this trial. Allow for this trial to produce some character in you, some humility. Be purposeful about it. James says it at one point, he says, um, and some people are familiar with this verse, consider it pure joy, right, when you face trials. Well, that's a, that's a response. Well, how are you going to respond to it? How do you use it? How are you going to grow through it? And he says one of the responses is to recognize that all that happens in our life, um, God is still superintending, and you can respond in ways that can make a difference in your life. So both Peter and James make it clear, expect trials will... Well, each one of us face it. We have no choice about that, but we do have a choice. You have a choice right now in the trial that you may be facing or one that will come to you, how you will respond to it. How will you use it? Because trials teach humility. At times, they actually force us to our knees. They cause us to surrender. I call them a graduate-level teachers of dependence. Ever been in one of those situations where you're in a situation and you, you don't know what to do, you don't have the wisdom to do it? Sometimes you're faced in a circumstance with illness and you, there's nothing you can do. And they're just naturally humbling. And there are opportunities for you to admit and go, you know, God, I, this is beyond me. I really need your wisdom. I need your help. I need you to step into this. I need for you to even use this. Sometimes God allows trials in our lives because he needs to refine our character. I was reading one of the stories that was interesting of a lady named Frances Perkins. She was one of the first women who was in politics back in the 1930s. And she, was a, um, she had worked, she had actually come out of this incredible fire that happened in this building and it really had touched her life and so she really wanted to do things in, 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 in helping people um, with regard to labor laws and other things like that. And so she still worked for a while for this place called Hull House. And then eventually the governor of New York saw the things that she was doing and he, actually, he appointed her to the Industrial Commission back in the 1930s. And, and that was the branch of government that regulated workplace conditions because of some of her past and what she had experienced. And it's written of her, she was not only a rare woman in a man's world, she was in the manliest precincts of a man's world. She traveled to factory towns and threw herself in the middle of bitter disputes between energized labor organizers, which was a big deal then, and determined corporate executives. And and obviously that's a place where you go, help me God, right? She was strong and and confident, but very humble. And and seldom um, would she say things like, I did this. She would say, one did this. And and today we think of that when you do that, you know, one did this. It's kind of pompous. It wasn't back then because when they would say, I did this, it brought attention to yourself. So when you said one did this, it was more the idea of, of, you know, anybody who would do their duty. It was a very humble way of, of talking. So during the 1910s and 20s, Perkins had the opportunity to work with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and in her journals, she noted that he did not impress her much. <laughs> she found him um, shallow and a bit arrogant, because he had this habit of throwing his head back as he spoke. 
and, and, and she was kind of wrote a few things. And, and she, she only had worked with FDR a few times before all of a sudden he slipped out of public life. And, and people weren't sure exactly why he flipped, slipped out of public life, but found out later that he had an attack of polio. And because of this polio, he, he, you know, he went through a very difficult time, entered back into public life, and they tried to hide that throughout his presidency. But she makes this comment. She notes that when he returned, he had changed. Something had happened as a result of that trial. Although he almost never spoke of Zeno's Perkins rights, it purged the slightly arrogant attitude he had displayed. That's just trials do that. Nothing causes growth quite like trials. Jesus is he um, is getting ready for ministry, and as he is about thirty years of age, Andrea alluded to this. He goes to be baptized to identify with the people, and as he does so, he's baptized, and, and before he does, a dove lands on his shoulders, and, and the Father from heaven says, this is my Son in whom I'm, I love and whom I'm well pleased. And, and here's what's interesting. If you read in the, in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says, from that place, Mark uses the words, Jesus didn't choose to enter into the wilderness as much as it says, the actual word in the Greek says, it, he was driven by the Spirit into this trial. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like God took the people through the sea and then he had them go through the wilderness as a way of developing character. So here is Jesus himself. He learned obedience, it says in Hebrews, to the things he suffered. Here is Jesus himself being driven by the Spirit of God after he's being told this, how deeply loved he is. He goes into this place, and here's what you need to know. If you're in a place of trial right now, one of the ways to stay humble and to hold on to God and to use this trial for yourself is to know this. Here's what Jesus knew. When he came and and Satan came to him and said, hey, look, take these stones and turn it to bread, Jesus said no because he remembered how deeply loved he was. He remembered that his identity was what his father had said, and he lived in that word and understood that word so he could look at him and go, I don't need to do that because my father will provide for me. And, and then he goes a little bit further, and, 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 and Satan takes him to the top of this hill, and he shows him all this power, and he says, you can have it all. Just bow to me. And Jesus remembers no, how much his father loves him. He goes, no, I don't need to do that. I don't need to rush the things of God. I can stay in this place for as long as God wants me to because he loves me and he will provide for me when he needs it at the right time. He not only goes into that trial, but there's another one that he bring, brings before him. And he says to him, he says, okay, Jesus, here's one, here's one last thing. And, you know, you've been talking about, you seem to be responding like your father. Your father really, really loves you. But, but here's what I want you to understand, and here's what I want you to know, that why don't you just prove to the world that he loves you and, and jump off this and, and, and have the angels kind of catch you. And Jesus looks at him and goes, I don't need to do that. I need to test his love. I can just trust his love. And I can allow the Spirit of God to use this trial in my life because what happens as he goes through this trial, there's almost this picture of, of going through like a garden kind of experience. Here's the innocence of this 30-year-old Son of God, who is told he's loved by his Father, who's commissioned for ministry, and one of the first things he does is go through this incredible trial, because in that trial, God is taking this innocence and creating a virtue, and when that virtue is created, it says in in Luke chapter 3, verse 18, that Jesus, when he returned to Galilee through the power of the Spirit, your trial is God's way of developing humility and character in you so that the, the work of God can work through you in great and influential ways. So, Use your trials. Secondly, take a risk. 
You're thinking, well, take a risk. Every day you have a choice. You can stay in your comfort zone or you can step out in faith. You know what? Faith expressed, not just thought about, talked about, not in classes you go to and we do all these kind of things and we get it in our head, but faith actually expressed where you actually step out and you act in faith, put yourself in a position for God to come through. Anytime you take a risk, you say, okay, God, I feel your spirit nudging me. I mean, you want me to talk to this person at work or you want me to unconditionally love this person who's been a pain to me. You know, all these different things that God might be nudging you to do. The spirit of God is telling you the word of God is really clear on how to act. And then in faith, you kind of step out. Whenever you get to the edge of a limb, you feel a little bit what? Oh, is this going to hold me? It's humbling. Take a risk. Step out in faith. What's your comfort zone? Where is it that God is saying, I want you to kind of step a little bit further out of here? Every person of God who has done influentially great things for God are people who have learned humility through taking risks. David, he, he, he comes to the place, and here's the battlefield, and here's this huge Goliath, and he looks at Goliath, and he's going, man, my God's done this for me before. But you've got to think he's probably a little bit afraid, right? He grabs some stones and a sling, and he goes, man, God, you've got to be with me. Whenever you take a step of faith in God's will and what he's calling you to do, you give him opportunity to move through you to do things you could never do on your own. You give God an opportunity for people's lives to be touched by your love, by your kindness, by whatever expression it is of faith he's calling you to. And folks, it doesn't have to be slaying huge giants. It may be the simple way that you love your spouse or your your loved one and people around go, I just am amazed at how you guys love each other. I I love the story of of Moses. He was the one that Bruce looked at before that. And here's Moses. He's taking the people of Israel and he's got all these stories of, of his humility where he was influential for God. He goes by what I call the shortcut that could have got him right into Palestine. God says, I don't want you to take that way. And he goes to what I call the long cut. And the long cut's a bad path because it's right in front of a sea. And the Egyptians are behind him and the people behind him are complaining like, you know, they complain once in a while. I don't know, ever notice that you complain, I complain. But, you know, so they're complaining. And Moses is crying out to God and God says, lift the staff. He lifts the staff and the sea parts and the children go through and the Egyptian army is is completely covered and wiped out and God saves them and they walk through the wilderness. There's another time they stand before water. They come to this Jordan River and, and, and Moses has commissioned Joshua to now be the leader. And Joshua's really kind of afraid. And God says, I want you to take the people. The river is, you know, we th- it wasn't a babbling brook or a little stream, okay? You need to understand it. The river was at flood season. It was rushing down. It, the rains had come from the mountains, and it was pouring down way over the edges. And, and God says, Joshua, I want you to take the people over to the other side. And Joshua's going to figure out how to do it. And he, 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 I'm, I'm sure he's, God tells him, line up the people. Can you imagine? It's almost like a draft. You know, who's going to be the first tribe that goes through? Oh, we got number 12. Yeah. We're number one. And people are pushing people in front. And then God says, no, I want the leaders of those tribes. I want the leaders to be in front. And now the leaders are going, oh, shoot. I thought we got 12. I got to wait 11. They're put up in front. They stand up in front. The water's rushing by. And they're waiting for, they're waiting for Joshua. Just lift it. I mean, come on. God did it before. Just lift the staff. And he doesn't. You know what God's word is? 
It's one that's so incredibly risky. He says, Joshua, I want you to have the leaders of the people put their their feet into the water. Now, I'm telling you, if you get knee deep in that, you're going down with it, and they know it. But he says, I want them to take a risk because I want them to realize that it is their act of faith that releases my power. So they step into it ankle deep in the water parts. You may be waiting to say, God, you know, part the water, do this. If you do this, then God, I'll step out. And he's looking at you right now in your heart. And he's saying, no, you need to step out in faith because your act of faith, the risk you take, reveals your humility to trust me. And it's through that that I express my power. So you have to take a risk. I'm, I'm talking, these are really practical things you can do. You can choose to do this. And not only take a risk, there's a, a third thing I encourage you to do. It's to serve somebody. See, every day we have a choice. Think about this. You have a choice to wake up and put your mind on yourself. How many do that? Come on, I do. There's a few of you. I'm not the only guy, I hope. You can put your mind on yourself and all your problems, everything you got, or you can get your mind off yourself and put it on someone else. That's a real humbling thing to do. Because that's the kind of statement that says, God, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of my life. I'm going to pay attention to it, but I'm going to trust you to provide and to do things that need to do. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to walk with you in wise ways. I'm going to pay you know, careful attention. But at the same time, I'm also going to allow you to put my mind on other people. Because at the core of Christianity is a simple practice called service. I think one of the reasons at the core of Christianity is because it's at the core of God's heart. And when you serve, humility begins to grow in your heart. Serving is essentially putting someone else's needs and interests above our own. It's treating others in the same way we treat them, catch this, if they were actually someone important. One of the great things about God is he's given us an imagination. Um, we've given that imagination to the devil far too long. This, the things that God gives us in this world are good and can be used for good and bad. You have an imagination. That imagination can be used and sanctified and used in good ways. Here's one way you can do it. You have someone that's difficult to, to care for. You're in a situation where you're mad at your spouse or you're upset with your kids and, and, and you're asked to do this act of service. Just pretend they're the most important person in the world. Imagine it. Imagine you're serving the king or queen. Now, some of you live with people who think they're kings and queens, but that's not really my point. It's, it's putting people's interest in front of others and be in front of yourself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Paul's writing to a very wonderful church, but there seems to be some selfishness here. Rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. And here's how you do it. In relationship with one another, have this mindset that Jesus had who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something that he used to his advantage or he, I love the one verse says, had to grasp hold of. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want you to note this. When Jesus came in the nature of servant, he was not trying to disguise who God is. 
You sometimes have this picture that God, you know, he came in Jesus so he could kind of disguise, so he could just, he wasn't trying to disguise. When he came in the nature of servant, he wasn't disguising as God. He was actually revealing who God is. God is the infinite, eternal servant. God is the most humble being in the universe. He was just being God in flesh. And the primary reason I think Jesus calls us to be servants is not just, it's not just because people need our service. We kind of think, well, but you know, we've got to serve people because they need our service. That's not, I think, the primary motivation behind how God calls us to service. You know why he calls us? It's because of what happens to us when we serve. See, what God is seeking to do when we get our minds on other people and we begin to serve other people, see, it, there's a natural place. You have to move to humility. And in humility, what is happening is the very character of God is being formed in you because that's his most important, that's the hardest thing for him to do. He can serve all kinds of people in any way he wanted to, but to get you to be a person who has a character of humility that actually naturally reaches out to serve people is a totally different deal. And I just ask you, are you serving? Because serving increases humility. The greatest among you, says Jesus, will serve others, not might serve others or think about it or, 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 or go to classes that talk about it, but they'll actually serve others. Because serving gets your mind off yourself. Humility grows because you choose to think about someone else. You choose to pay attention to their needs, their interests. It forces you to notice, to listen carefully, to love in a way they feel loved. Boy, I'm still learning this. I'm learning it with my family. I'm learning it with my wife. I remember when we were early in our marriage, I, 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 one of her languages of love is gifts. And it's not just getting lots of gifts or expensive gifts, praise God. It's, um, uh, it's really about getting gifts that, that understand who she is. And when I was younger, I got her a whole bunch of kitchen stuff. And that, for some reason, I thought it was a great gift. But anyway... Um, she wasn't into a rice cooker. She doesn't even like rice. <laughs> so then, over the years, and I'm not real good at it, and I'm just starting to actually, just starting to learn some of this stuff. I'm just kind of going, God, I just got to study her and know her and understand her. And how do I? And some of you are really natural at that. But some of us need to get into that place where we actually intentionally think and study and understand our kids, those who we deeply love. Maybe some of that work God's putting on your heart. It's not to share your faith with them to get the job over. It's to share your heart with them to win their heart out of love. There's an article I sent to the um, elders. And uh, it talks about the loss of humility that's affecting the church today. The author writes, over the last 100 years, North American Christianity somehow fused with consumerism to the point where we wrongly define discipleship as what we can get from God or from a church. That's because at its heart, consumer Christianity asks, what's in it for me? And that view of Christianity is simply backwards. Christian maturity isn't marked by how much we know or what we can get. It is always and has been marked by how much we love, and how much we give in light of how deeply we've been loved and how much we've been given. He says, even the critics who have left the church, a lot of people have left the church of believers, have done so under the, the, the pull of consumer Christianity because no church meets their needs. So they've kind of grown beyond it. And all of this is antithetical to the gospel, which calls us to die to ourselves, to lose ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Our faith 
calls us to live for Christ and to love and to reach the world for which he died. I had this experience a few years back where a, a young family came and, and you know, we were just getting some young families and, and I was kind of saying, man, I'd really love for you to stay and, and I, I realized we don't have as many young families and this and that. And, and a person just looked at me and said, you know, it's not about me and us and other young families. My question is, God, will you be here? And if so, how do we serve? I went, whoa. That's a little bit different. The article says, when you're no longer focused on yourself and your viewpoint, he's talking to churches now, when you're no longer focused on yourself and your viewpoint, a new tone emerges. I believe a new tone is emerging within us. God is calling us to love and to serve, and he's doing some really cool things, and I just thank God for it. I just, you know, some of you, if you say, I'd like to serve, and you're kind of going, I can't make these full commitments. We have a serve sheet. There's some long-term things here, but there's a lot of things. You can just come in one, once a month. In fact, one way to do it is say, God, for the next month, I'm going to one time a month serve. This would be an easy way to do it. Another practical step is to develop honest friendships. You've, you have a choice in every friendship you develop and the people around you. You can develop what I call safe friends or you can develop honest friends. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have some safe friends. You really do need safe friends. You don't want people abusing you and, you know, and hurting you. But what you want is honest friends. And sometimes honest friends aren't the safest. And let me share what I mean by that. See, we all grow up with this sense of what I call this kind of uh, fear-based pain. We have things in our life and they cause fear. And our natural reaction is to protect ourselves. It's the way God creates us. And so we cause distance or we try to control the situation or we fly. You know, there's all kinds of things we do. And so what happens is it's not, when you have a fear-based reaction, it's not in your rational choices. You're not kind of thinking. You just habitually, quickly respond. And you do it again and again. You not only do it to situations like a fire or some other thing out here, but you do it with relationships. And, and, and we learn how to do this kind of dance even in relationships. And, and it happens so quickly, we feel it's normal. And so one of the things we want to do is get around other people who help us feel normal so we don't have to respond and react to what is fear-based in us. So one way we protect ourselves from dealing with our fear-based normal reactions is to surround ourselves with people who are safe. Safe people are those who agree with you and reinforce what you already believe about the world. Hear that? So here's a question. If you were to take a survey of all the people who are, who are close to you and really know you, would, would they be people who share similar core values, political affiliations, education, social and economic status? Now it's really interesting, the people Jesus brought around himself, the cast of characters were really wildly diverse and different. Lots of different viewpoints, a lot of political decisions. And I mean, if Jesus had to do today in our political climate, anyway. Um, if you could get around someone who doesn't support your worldview, do you find if you're around those kind of people, they trigger your defenses? You've got to immediately move to defense. And whether we are aware of it or not, our brain is saying, it's been programmed to say, I don't want that person around me. They scare me. Their ideas scare me. I want them as far away as possible because I want to be comfortable in my own little belief bubble. And one of the greatest lines in the gospel is found in Luke chapter 15, 1 through 3, where it says, by, the time, by this time, this is later in the ministry, by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. And the Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not pleased at all. And they growled, they grumbled. He he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. 
And their grumbling triggered a couple stories, one about a, a lost lamb, one about some lost coins, and one about some lost sons. Are there people in your life who truly keep you humble? They can point out your fear-based reactions. I praise God, because even, you know, some of you guys in, in, in women in corporate settings, you need people around you who can really challenge you. And I praise God for our elders. I've got elders who we are, are unified, but we really challenge one another. It's really good, really healthy. And then the final thing is to stay small through worship. Boy, I, got, I just, you have a choice when you come in here every Sunday, if you choose to come in Sundays. You have a choice to kind of come in and kind of go, well, I wonder how it's going to be today. Or you have a choice to say, God, I'm here, I'm here humbly to encounter you. I'm going to come here, and when, and when we sing songs of worship, whether I like it or whether, I'm going to just pour myself into it. I'm going to worship you with all my being. I am going to get to this place where I start looking at you and, and saying how good, good father you are. And I just can't believe that you love me. And you're perfect in all your ways. I don't understand what you're doing right now, but I'm just going to, I'm going to take an appropriately small position before you and recognize who you are. One of the things I'm going to challenge our church and really ask us to think about is there's all kinds of ways to worship God. I'm not saying worship God happens just on Sundays, but one of the things you can do is practice appropriate smallness and humility. And you can learn to be great in this way by coming here on a consistent basis and just pouring yourself out before God in worship, getting him in this place where you see him as big and you see yourself as you really are. And it should be one of the greatest things in the week that you walk out of here and you go, praise God, I can be me. I don't have to handle all the problems in my life. There's a God who will help me through it. This should be one of these kind of places when we come into worship. God, you can do this by looking at the stars and get an appropriate smallness. You can study the character of God and just say he's truthful, he's faithful, he's so dependable, he's so honest with people, he's so merciful, he's so patient, he's so loving, he's so forgiving. Just look at that and that will humble you. Or you can look at the Gospels. And, and, and one of the great things to do is read God's word every day. Because it, it, if you read God's word, not as a way of getting a bounty, kind of a brownie point and a pat on the back, that was good, you, you know, check that off. He's really... But you read it to become appropriately small by understanding who God is. You will be used greatly of God. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to come on because we're going to practice this together. We're going to take these final moments. We may go a minute over, okay? But I'm going to read this illustration. I had debated whether to do this this week and put this in here, but as they come and we worship... I just want to share with you this story because it'll help, I think, us move to worship. There was these three young men. This isn't a joke, by the way. There's three young men, and, and they actually hopped on a bus in Detroit. It was in the 1930s, and they came on this bus. There was really no one on it but one guy in the back and the bus driver who doesn't pay attention to what's going on. So they went to the back. Here's this guy sitting there, and, um, and they, they were maybe a little drunk. I don't know, but they started to ridicule him. They insulted him. And as they were insulting him, um, he just didn't respond. And so as they um, continued to provoke him, and they, they ridiculed him, and they called him names, and they were hoping he'd lash out at them because it'd justify why they could physically enter. You know, if we can emotionally get him to react and eventually physically, we can just take care of him. And he didn't. In fact, he didn't respond at all. And when the next stop came, he got up, and he, he went to leave to get off the bus. And as he's walking off the bus going by these guys, he hands them a card, a business card walks by, and, and, and when he got up, here's the thing I forgot to tell you. When he got up, they, they thought he, would, he didn't look real big. He kind of slouched down. He got up, 
he was far bigger than he looked like when he was sitting there. In fact, the story, they say he was much bigger. He hands him this card, he walks off. They huddle and they look around the card, and on the card are just a couple words, Joe Lewis, boxer. <clears throat> now catch this. Uh, if the worship team is, could come forward at this time, I'd really love it, thanks. Um, I don't want to be up here alone. Anyway, they had just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. And unknowingly, they had tried to pick a fight with the number one boxer of all time, according to the International Boxing Research Organization. And second on the list is, guess who? Muhammad Ali. And they had no idea that when they were egging this guy on, it was said of him that he could knock out a horse with one punch. And here is a man of immense power and skill and capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. Yet he chooses in humility to forgo his status and hold his power because throughout his life he just served others. And in humility he walked by three guys and truly blessed them. I'm going to ask you to stand because we're going to talk about and sing together of a God who had all the right in the world when Jesus was on the cross and people were insulting him. You think of all the things he was doing, all the stuff that he could have easily like that go, God. And just like this guy who they were ignorant of who they were facing, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. So I'm going to ask you to enter into worship and exalt and, and lift up God together.